Hi friends! This episode of Pot in Order is brought to you by Pranin Organic, a Canadian company that makes nutritional supplements using only organic plant ingredients. Pranin products are available online at pranin.com with international shipping. You can use the code PAW15 to save 15% off your total purchase. This episode is also brought to you by Naked Coconuts. It's an unfortunate common practice for many coconut product brands to use the cruel labor of monkeys, but Naked Coconuts isn't one of them. They are committed to providing coconut and MCT oils, soy-free soy sauces, and more, all without the use of animals. And finally, this episode is brought to you by The Grinning Goat, Canada's vegan fashion boutique with a storefront in Calgary, and more importantly right now, an online store that ships across Canada and worldwide. As a Paw and Order podcast listener, you can save 15% on your entire purchase at grinninggoat.ca simply using the code PAW15 at checkout. This is another iRaw podcast. We podcast to make the world a better place for animals. In the Canadian justice system, animals' interests are rarely represented, but the lawyers at Animal Justice fight to give them a voice in court and the political system. This is the Paw and Order podcast. And these are their stories. All right, everyone, and welcome to episode 55 of the Pod in Order podcast. I am your host, Camille Labchuk, and I'm joined today by another guest host, Caitlin Mitchell, who's a staff lawyer at Animal Justice. Welcome to the podcast, Caitlin. Thank you. It's very good to be here. Yeah, I know. Caitlin, you've been working at Animal Justice for almost a year, and it's to my great shame that this is the first time that you've guest hosted the podcast, but Peter is just usually so territorial about it, so well, let's blame him. <laughs> no offense taken, I'm, but I'm happy that I got my invite today. <laughs> so for anyone wondering, Peter continues to improve. He's home from the hospital after his brain hemorrhage. He is working as hard as ever. I don't think that man ever lets up. And I'll let him talk more about this when he returns next episode, but he has now managed to place and fund 100 internships for law students who've lost their summer positions. So that was his goal, and we're super proud of him. Um, And we're actually benefiting from his generosity and from all of those efforts that he's been undertaking, Caitlin, because we've got two summer students, thanks to Peter. I know, it's amazing. We have like research support all over the place and uh, I like it's making my life so much easier. So I can't, (laughs) I cannot thank him enough. So shout out to our awesome summer students. Over the past two weeks, we've had a bunch of them join because uh, school has let out and exams are over. So we've got Jesse Schwartz and Crystal Russell, who are the Peter interns, who are amazing and just killing it so far. And we've also got Mackenzie Cumberland from U of T, Natasha Love, and JC Wynn, who are all working on really cool projects. I'm so excited about the research that they're doing for us. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a game changer, that's for sure, having all those bodies on staff to help us out. We had a staff meeting today and there were eight people on it and we're like, whoa, (laughs) this never happens. (laughs) So we've been staying as busy as ever. Um, We wanted to give you a bit of an update about something that uh, we were promoting heavily before the pandemic hit. 
And then we tried to take a step back and decide what to do about it. And that's the 2020 Canadian Animal Law Conference scheduled for September 9th to 11th. So um, obviously at this point, in-person conferences, large events, they're just a no-go for this foreseeable future. And I, Caitlin, I've got no idea when that's going to change. I mean, it could be quite some time. Yeah, it's hard to predict. I keep being overly optimistic and thinking, you know, maybe next month, maybe next month. But I think I'm, I'm realizing that we're in this for the long haul. Yeah. And, you know, as we start to reopen things, it seems like everyone's saying that the last thing to, to go is going to be large scale events and weddings and things like that. And things like the gala that we had to cancel. Womp womp. Yeah. But uh, the cool news is that we have made a decision to move the conference online. And I'm actually really excited about it because, you know, in some ways it's disappointing. It's always sad that we don't get to see each other in person. And I love conferences because it's a chance to see so many people from across the country and around the world who work on these issues and really network. But in other ways, it's actually kind of cool to do it online because it frees us up a lot. Uh, we don't have to adhere to a format as closely because people can kind of choose what sessions they want to go to. We can offer more international programming because no one has to travel to attend the conference. So we're not really limited by the speakers we can invite. Yeah, I think having additional international content will be awesome. And uh, and then we don't have to worry about the added greenhouse gas emissions either from having people traveling from all over the world. It's going to be a super eco-friendly conference, which is great. And, and I really want to thank our sponsors who are standing by us as this pandemic unfolds and we figure out what we're doing. But uh, the thing I did want to let listeners know about is that we're reopening the call for submissions for the conference. Uh, we had closed that previously back, I think, in in um, March, and we got a lot of amazing submissions. We actually went through them the other week and, and just very impressed by what people have sent in so far. But we also thought it would be really important to reopen it so we can have more programming related to the pandemic, because clearly that's on everyone's mind right now, and it's affecting all the work that we're doing. So if you want to learn more, visit canadiananimallawconference.ca. It's our website. We have information there about how you can apply to present about a pandemic topic. And we're also going to be announcing something kind of cool, which is the Scholars Track at the conference. And the Scholars Track is something sponsored by a partner organization. Um, they're sponsors of ours for this conference, and that's the Brooks Institute in the States. And the idea is to have some more scholarly presentations that go a little bit more in depth than a panel could with only 15 minutes per participant and uh, really drill down into some issues and have some actual papers that people can read and more substantive information. So visit the website to learn more about that. We would love to get more applications and uh, the deadline isn't until early June. So you've got some time. All right, now moving on to other things. Uh, for our main topic today, we're gonna talk about some of the issues right now going around with government bailouts of different industries and we'll get into the details of that. but. Before we move into that, we've also got uh, some news. And I wanted to remind everyone to leave us a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or whatever they're now calling it. Uh, we have over 100 five-star reviews and it really makes a difference. It helps people find the podcast and tune in and get uh, aware. And I just wanted to read a new review, uh, someone who's left it recently, Nikki, Nikki M4. Uh, Nikki says, this podcast delivers updates and current information that assists with continuing the fight for animal justice. There are laughs and pokes between the hosts that help you get through the tough information and you get to come back for more. 
The podcast provides me with a weekly dose of keep it up and gives me more reason today than ever to stay vegan. So that's awesome. Thank you so much, Nikki. Yeah, that's a good one. So we'd love if you left us a review too. And if you want to support what we're doing, you can also go to Patreon and visit us at patreon.com slash paw and order. And that's where you can sign up to be a monthly sustainer of the podcast for as little as a dollar a month. We have a new supporter this week, Canine Haven Rescue. And I just want to say a huge thank you to Canine Haven Rescue because you guys help bring these episodes to the rest of the listeners. So if you want to play a role, you can you can support us for as little as a dollar a month. And we've got all kinds of perks that supporters can get as well. So thanks to everyone who leaves reviews and supports the work that we do. Um, okay, Caitlin, so on to the news. There is always a lot going on, and we've chosen a few stories to talk about this week. Um, why don't we start with Brian Adams? <laughs> yeah, he seems to be uh, grabbing headlines as of yesterday. Yeah, so Brian Adams uh, posted on Instagram, and I guess it was on Twitter too. Um, he's upset. Well, first of all, let me just say Brian Adams is a longtime vegan. He's been vegan for like forever, like I think longer than probably you and I have been. Yeah, it's a 30 years, I think. What, that's what I read. Way before it was cool. Yeah. And he's a loud and proud animal activist, I would say. Um, he posts all the time about vegan issues on Instagram. Uh, on Monday, he complained about having to postpone some upcoming shows and he said some stuff that was um, has been interpreted by some as being racially charged and inappropriate. He said that some effing bat-eating, wet-market, animal-selling, virus-making greedy bastards are to blame for us having to put the world on hold. So as you can imagine, people were pretty mad about this. <laughs> Yeah, that's for sure. I think, uh, I, and I think some of like some of the backlash, I, I understand. Some of it, I think, um, went a little far. Like in some of the reporting I saw, they even seemed to suggest that his mention of virus making was a reference to some of those clearly debunked conspiracy theories around this virus being man-made in a lab. Um, and I clearly don't think that's what he was saying there. I don't think so either. That's not really what I took from it, but. You know, he's right to point out that eating and using animals got us into this mess, but he was also totally right to apologize because the last thing we need right now is to stoke racial tensions. Um, I've just been heartbroken to, to hear on the radio about how so many people of Asian background are being discriminated against and yelled at in public and assaulted and uh, really put through the ringer because of racist ideas going around right now about viruses. And, you know, I think... What was unfortunate and, and sort of got missed in the coverage is like, yeah, he's he's pointing out that wet markets are a problem, which they are. But, you know, this virus could have just as easily emerged in a North American factory farm. Yeah, that's for sure. And I think, uh, you know, people uh, people are obviously shocked by the images that are coming out from wet markets. And I think that they should be shocked and appalled by those images. But of course, you know, some suffering going on in North America is happening behind closed doors. Um, so it's easy to point the finger at other people overseas and not realize that, you know, suffering's going on right in many of our backyards. Yeah, we just like to keep it hidden from view and pretend that it's not there. But our, our friend Jessica Scott Reed, who we talk about a lot on this podcast, and you may hear her on the show as a future guest host at some point. But Jessica wrote a piece in the Toronto Star. She got it out within hours of this controversy. And I thought it was a really good take on uh, Brian Adams' comments. 
Um, she calls him out, and I, I like this line that she uses. She says, what Adams got wrong, though, was pointing his white Western finger elsewhere, othering the issue, and failing to see how it involves us all. And then she goes on to describe some of the practices that are standard on Canadian farms, which are unregulated uh, when it comes to animal welfare, and which we prefer just to ignore. Yeah, indeed. And I think so many interesting uh, scientific articles and op-ed pieces over the past weeks have pointed out that factory farms really are the perfect breeding conditions in many respects for future zoonotic diseases. Um, you know, keeping thousands of animals confined um, with virtually similar, uh, virtually identical, I should say, genetics um, and severely compromised immune systems. You know, we, we certainly are creating risk here at home and there's a very good chance that the next pandemic could originate in Canada uh, or North America. Exactly. Just like many already have. We, we've got avian influenza, swine flu that have come from factory farms, and it's just a matter of time before that happens again. Uh, I'm glad that Adams promoted veganism. And he, when he apologized, he said he just wanted to discuss animal cruelty in the wet markets and to promote veganism. So, it, you know, it's good that that conversation is being had. Um, but we're also very wary, you know, with animal justice. We're for justice for animals because we're justice. We're for justice for everyone. And that includes uh, not being racist. That includes making sure that everybody feels respected and doesn't face discrimination, including people and including animals. So, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know where the conversation is going to go, if this story is going to die down or what. But I do hope that we start to hear more about the animal suffering issues behind uh, the pandemic, because I feel like some international publications are doing a good job, but we still haven't heard enough from Canadian papers. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, speaking about the links between animal suffering and human suffering, um, really, really tragic news that we just got that a third death has now been linked to the Cargill slaughterhouse in Alberta. Um, it's actually a really heartbreaking story. The um, man who died <sighs> is uh, he was an, an immigrant from Mexico he had been working at the plant for quite some time. Um, everyone says he was an amazing person, uh, really took care of people. He was involved with the union. And uh, that's, yeah, now that's now the third death linked to that slaughterhouse in Alberta uh, with hundreds, perhaps even thousands at this point of other people sick. Yeah, the most recent numbers that I've seen were that uh, 1,500 cases are linked to that facility, um, and that includes more than 940 employees who have tested positive. So those numbers are just shocking, I think, and astronomical in light of numbers in Canada as a whole. Yeah, truly. And I actually, I haven't looked into this in any, any depth, but I did see an interesting piece in the New York Times as well, looking at North American outbreaks and geographically comparing where they are. Uh, and it seems like most of the biggest community outbreaks are in communities with slaughterhouses. So, you know, at this point, it seems like slaughterhouses are uh, a bigger risk of, of people getting this virus and getting infected than even being a healthcare worker, which is heartbreaking. Yeah, you know, it's hard to believe. And we're also seeing a bunch more cases, of course, in Canadian slaughterhouses. And this includes at this point, the first case at the infamous Veerman's Pork Slaughterhouse. Um, if any of you recall the pig trial where a woman named Anita Crines was put on trial for the criminal offense of mischief, which uh, they said she had committed by giving water to suffering pigs inside a transport truck on a hot day, she was acquitted. But that was outside Fearman's Pork Slaughterhouse. We know that place is a house of horrors. 
um, they have their first case. Uh, you know, I'm sure by the time you're listening to this, there's probably going to be more. It's just a matter of time. But so far, that's what we know. Um, apparently, Maple Lodge Farms, which is the largest slaughterhouse in the country, they, they actually kill half a million chickens per day, which is just really difficult to even imagine what that number means. Um, but they've now had one death as well and dozens of cases. And again, this is I think this information is now a couple of days old, so it could be uh, many more than just a few dozen at this point. And Caitlin, apparently the Cargill plant in Quebec has at least 13 percent of workers infected and is also being forced to shut down. It's in Chambly, Quebec. Yeah, I saw that as well. Uh, I mean, no surprise, but um, but, you know, it's just so sad to see that the trend is continuing. Yeah, these slaughterhouses are obviously not doing enough. And, you know, it's possible that there's no way they could ever do enough because the conditions under which those workers are forced to labor are just so problematic and lend themselves so perfectly to spreading infectious diseases. Yeah, there's a, and it's interesting too, because there are so many factors at play. And obviously one of them is, is working in a high speed assembly line type environment. But then at the same time, you know, there, there are other assembly line work environments across the country and we're just not hearing outbreaks from those facilities. So obviously there's more to it than that. Yeah, no one's complaining about outbreaks at Beyond Meat or impossible food burger plants or cracker factories or, you know, places making plant-based foods. It's very clear that this has something to do with the fact that animals are being slaughtered, which is which is heartbreaking. Uh, and, you know, interestingly, there's there's another story that we came across this week about the Canadian Food Inspection Agency, which is tasked with monitoring slaughterhouses. They don't inspect labor conditions, but they do ostensibly inspect some animal conditions. The very few animal welfare laws that do apply to farmed animals apply at slaughter and transport. And uh, CFA workers uh, are supposed to be in slaughterhouses at all times, but apparently there's a shortage. So what the CFA is doing is conscripting workers who are not normally trained for slaughter inspection, and they're giving them a, some additional training and then ordering them to go into these unsafe work environments or else face disciplinary actions. So these are people who did not sign up to be slaughterhouse inspectors. They don't want to be slaughterhouse inspectors. They're being sent in and they're being threatened with employee discipline if they don't do it, which I think is pretty disturbing. Yeah, it is disturbing, and uh, and it just seems like such a clearly bad move, even just from a PR standpoint. I mean, I'm just surprised at this point, given how much has been written and how much public focus is on these facilities, that um, you know governments or private companies would continue to force employees to put their lives on the line, essentially, to do this work. Yeah, it's really telling when, when people are so unwilling to go into these risky situations that slaughterhouses have to close. Uh, I mean, because that's mostly what happens. It's not so much that slaughterhouses, when they shut down, are doing it out of altruism or concern for their employees. It tends to be situations more where they just don't have enough workers or the workers are saying, it's not safe, I'm not coming in. So what does that say about the meat industry? Well, and even the Cargill facility in Alberta, you know, there was polling done before they reopened that suggested that 85% of workers were afraid to return to work. And, and yet the facility is open now. So, you know, my heart really goes out to those workers. 
Yeah, somehow we've decided that meat is an essential service. But you know who's not hurting is all the pea protein producers, all the grain farmers, all these farmers who are producing these resilient crops that can feed people, they can be shelf stable for long periods of time, and they're not subject to A, the cruelty involved, um, B, the, the harm to workers in the same way, and uh, C, to the pressures of the supply chain. Yeah, I mean, I, I was reading in the news that pulse farmers are doing quite well these days. So I think, you know, that's at least some good news to come out of this. Yeah, and we'll circle back around to this too, for sure, when we talk about our main topic. But um, before we get to that, there's there, there's some interesting uh, information that we've just released. Um, every year, Animal Justice compiles the slaughter statistics from the previous year. So usually for 2019 statistics, it takes a few months to get those out. Uh, they're now being released by Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada. And we've, um, we've done a blog post, which we'll link to in the show notes, just showing everybody how many animals have been slaughtered in Canada for food last year. Now, note, first of all, this is land animals only. Um, we don't track the lives of fishes or aquatic animals. Their lives are measured in tons. Um, we are looking at doing an analysis to see how many of them are killed, so you can watch for that. But what we're talking about right now is, is just land animals. Um, so unfortunately, Caitlin, what we're seeing this year, or not, not this year, but 2019, is that over 833 million land animals were killed at the hands of the meat industry. And this is actually up a huge amount from even five years ago. In 2015, it was only 750 million. So it's um, it's a bit of bad, disturbing news about the direction we're going in. Yeah, no kidding. That's a, that's a bit of a disturbing trend. I'm so consistent too, year over year. Yeah, the, the curve is uh, like the line graph. You can check out the line graph on our blog, but it's, it is very consistent. It's a pretty steady increase of about uh, 20 million per year additional animals being killed. And what's interesting and, and awful about this is that the ongoing increase in slaughter, it's almost entirely due to more chickens being killed for meat. And what's what's happening, it seems to us, is that uh, per capita demand for most types of meat is actually declining or remaining relatively constant over the last 30 years. So pig consumption, cow consumption, it's actually gone down by about a third. But chicken meat consumption has more than doubled. And because chickens are so much smaller than cows or pigs, so many more of them have to be killed to sell the same amount of meat. Yeah, I mean, and when you see the breakdown by species, it's just shocking to me that like, how many chickens there are. And that doesn't even include, you know, most of the time when you look at those numbers, it doesn't even include other chickens that are killed. You know, for instance, uh, male chicks that are slaughtered immediately after birth in the egg industry. So, I mean, the numbers are just uh, through the roof. Yeah, through the roof. So of those 800, and it's basically 834 million land animals, 747 million of those were chickens bred exclusively from meat. Uh, the next largest category is egg-laying hens and breeding chickens, and that's about 34 million. So it's just, it's an overwhelming number of chickens. Uh, and, you know, I think what's troubling is that so often, and we see this reflected in the trends that we just spoke about, but people who are interested in moving away from eating meat. Caitlin, I'm sure you've got friends or family members who are saying, oh, I'm down to just eating chicken and fish at this point. I'm off the red meat. And it's like, you want to say to them on the one hand, like, good that you're taking steps. But if you're replacing red meat with chicken meat, you're actually probably causing more suffering. 
Yeah, that's for sure. And I don't think people really think about it that way when you kind of break it down to the numbers. I think often people don't conceptualize of the meat on their plate is actually coming from a being. So it's, you know, the equivalent amount of pig meat versus chicken meat. Um, they don't really think about the fact that it actually adds up to more individuals in the long run. No. And, and then you compound that by the fact that people naturally sort of feel a little less connection with birds because they're not the same. Um, well, we're mammals. They're not mammals. I think it's a little bit more difficult for us to empathize with them. And same with fish. Yeah, fish uh, even more so. Yeah, definitely. They live in a totally different environment. They're not even on the land. Whereas pigs and cows, it's, you know, it's a little bit easier and people tend to gravitate more toward those animals, but, but chickens, not as much so far. So, you know, it's disappointing news. And what's going to be interesting to see as a result of the pandemic is whether we'll start to see those numbers budge for the first time and start to go in the other direction. Um, we know that eating chickens is actually a huge driver of influenza uh, outbreaks just because there's so many of them. So the fact that we're going in that direction is troubling. But Kayla, what we're starting to see is uh, the chicken industry in response to slaughterhouse closures and supply chain shifts actually telling its members to grow fewer chickens. I saw that, you know, and, and that's that's, I guess, some positive news. I think the national flock, um, as they call it, uh, is going to be down 12 percent or so. So, I mean, I'm, I'm hopeful at least that that will prevent some of the culling that we're seeing going on in other industries. Um, but you know, it'll be, it'll be interesting also to see how long that lasts. Indeed, indeed. And and the interesting context, the difference between reducing, I hate to use this word because it's like buying into industry terminology, but like reducing chicken supplies or chicken flock, whatever they call it. It's a different process from dealing with pigs or cows who can't be sent to slaughter because slaughterhouses are closed. Um, because you can actually scale down more quickly with chickens because their lives are very short. They're slaughtered after only six to eight weeks. So if you just stop hatching those chickens within six to eight weeks, uh, there could be a serious reduction in numbers. So that's why I'm kind of hopeful that this will at least mean fewer chickens being killed this year. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, on the topic of people's attitudes about foods and how their diets might shift in response to the pandemic, uh, I almost missed this, but our friends at Factory Farm Collective retweeted this. There was an interesting poll by Research Co. that shows that one in five Canadians, so 21%, they expect more people to consider adopting vegetarian or vegan diets after the outbreak ends. Uh, and that's actually up to 26% in British Columbia, which is pretty astonishing, actually. It is. I found the wording of the question interesting, too, that it didn't ask, will you consider adopting a vegan or vegetarian diet after the outbreak, but that, that it was worded as, do you expect more people? So it'll be interesting to see what that actually translates it to in terms of people making that decision to change their lifestyle. But certainly it's promising. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. So, you know, let's hope uh, that at least one positive thing that might come out of this pandemic is a shift in our diet. Um, it, it's, it's not just that it should, it's just that it literally has to. If we want to sustain life on this planet, if we want to be more pandemic proof in the future, something's got to give. So, you know, at least that's promising. Um, I feel like still this message that pandemics are related to our use of animals hasn't permeated. There's some interesting research from um, a group called Faunalytics that I was looking at the other week. I'll send it uh, or we can link to it in the blog post. 
but it showed that most people are still not really aware of that link. So I wonder if uh, these numbers could look even better if groups like us and, you know, the whole community working on these issues is able to get that message out there more strongly. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, even just going back to what we discussed at first, the Brian Adams tweet, the now notorious Brian Adams tweet, I think even people that are aware of the link between the pandemic and food choices, I think, again, it's just too easy to, to see that link and to conceive of it as something that exists elsewhere, you know, with people that are, you know, not like us in some way. But, but really what we need to do is communicate the message that, you know, this is a global problem. It certainly is a problem in wet markets, but it's also a problem here in North America and that connection is clear and irrefutable when it comes to the risks on factory farms. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Prawn and Organic is a Canadian company that makes vegan certified organic nutritional powders using only plant ingredients. Pranan's products provide high levels of natural vitamins and minerals and are free from synthetic ingredients, animal products, and all other mystery ingredients. The Pure Food product line includes iron, vitamin C, B vitamin complex, and A to Z multivitamins. They're designed to complement almost any diet and can be especially helpful for those who are vegan or vegetarian by targeting common deficiencies and boosting nutrient intake from real organic fruits and vegetables. I have some of their products and I put them in my smoothies in the morning and they are delicious powders. Uh, and it's even better knowing that they're good for me. Pranin's products are available online with international shipping, including free shipping for orders over $100 to Canada and the US. As listeners of Paw and Order, you can get 15% off your total order at pranin.com, P-R-A-N-I-N, using the code PAW15. If you're like us, you're a fan of coconut oil for cooking, baking, or maybe even a moisturizer. But we were surprised and disappointed to learn that coconut products are not always as cruelty-free as we thought. I did not know that it's common practice to have monkeys harvest up to 800 coconuts a day to make many of the products that we love. But before you start saying goodbye to coconut oil, we've found a company with all that coconut goodness without the animal labor. Naked Coconuts was born from the desire to help busy people leading busy lives access nutritious foods that taste good and are good for the body, mind, and planet. Sauces, oils, and protein bites that are all soy-free, gluten-free, and made from coconuts harvested by human hands who are paid a fair living wage. So stock up on your coconut oil or MCT oils, soy-free soy sauces, and more by heading over to NakedCoconuts.com or finding tons of cooking inspiration on Facebook or Instagram at, at Naked Coconuts. I particularly love some of their stir-fry sauces, so please check them out. We're going to talk about bailouts. So the meat industry right now, it wants a bailout. All these animal industries want bailouts. They've actually asked for quite a lot of cash from the government. And instead of, and the government's giving them some cash, which we'll get into, but we're saying that instead of bailing out these industries that are failing for a whole lot of different reasons, why not fund a transition instead to plant-based agriculture that's sustainable, uh, doesn't involve mass scale animal abuse and more resilient to pandemics. So, Caitlin, why don't you fill people in on the, the letter that we sent um, just this week or last week, I guess it was now, to the federal government? Sure. Yeah. So we, we sent a letter last week um, and it was actually the day before they made their funding announcement, um, really just calling on the government to um to be really strategic and smart and also compassionate in the way that 
it uses public funds to bail out the agriculture sector at this time. So at the time we knew that uh, industries, the pig farming industry and cow farming industry in Canada were asking for more than $500 million in public funds. Um, and what we wanted to convey is that what we need to be doing right now is thinking about a sustainable farming future. So really investing in uh, policy and also taking our, our money and investing in um, climate compatible plant-based foods, um, but also uh, farming practices that reflect consumers' increasing concern over the treatment of animals. So um, really the, the message that we were trying to hit home is that the existing status quo in the animal agriculture sector, it's not working. It's not working for animals. It's not working for workers. Um, and I think that it's, it's good that there's some sort of national conversation going on about that now because until recently I really don't think that the vast majority of Canadians were aware of the conditions that workers face at slaughterhouses or throughout the food production system at large. So it's not working for workers, it's not working for animals, it's certainly not working for the environment when we look at water pollution, greenhouse gas emissions, water use. Um, the numbers are, are really just shocking. So uh, we want to see not just using funds to bail out farmers now so that we can continue our existing cycle, um, but really to, to use the money in a strategic way and make sure that our economic and social recovery from this crisis prepares us for future crises um, and hopefully prevents Canada from being the source of those future crises. So we, we want to make sure that we move to a food system that's resilient, um, that's safe, uh, healthy, sustainable, and uh, overall humane, which our current system certainly is not. Yeah, what's not to like about that? Resilient, healthy, sustainable, humane, that sounds good to me. Um, shout out too to our friends at Mercy for Animals and the Canadian Coalition for Farmed Animals who co-signed this letter that we sent. But, um, you know, I think it really is important and the timing was was um, was interesting too because the day after we sent the letter, that was when, as you, as you noted, the government did announce some funding. So I think the, the entire agriculture sector was asking for $2.6 billion initially, if my memory serves. And uh, they were given, it sounds like, about $250 million. And of that so far, we know $77 million is being devoted toward helping food processing plants um, upgrade their safety mechanisms. Um, but it doesn't seem like there's been a lot of detail yet on what that's actually going to mean. Is that your impression? Yeah, and actually I was just today watching the video from yesterday's um, meeting of the House of Commons Agriculture Committee, and it sounds like we can expect to see some of the details around how those funds will be distributed. Those details will be coming out, uh, they say, in the coming days, so it'll be really interesting to keep an eye on that. Yeah, we've been pretty clear that we shouldn't see any of that public funding. I mean, obviously, we don't want any of it going to animal agriculture, but especially not to large multinational slaughterhouses like Cargill, uh, which is owned by multiple members of a billionaire family. Like there's there's like 15 billionaires that own Cargill. Um, they had revenues of one hundred and thirteen billion dollars last year and profit of three billion. And what we've been saying is that they shouldn't see a dime of that upgrade money. They have the funds to do that already, and they don't need public cash to be doing that. 
Um, and interestingly, you know, I, I suspect they're going to get some because the government's been pretty evasive so far. So uh, there was an NDP member of parliament. I forget her name, but she asked this question in, in question period um, the other week. Uh, she asked the finance minister if Cargill was getting any of that money. And, and the response was pretty evasive. Yeah, I mean, and we've been talking a lot about Cargill too, but um, there is there, one of the other major outbreaks in the country was at the JBS plant in Alberta too, where I believe more than 500 workers have tested positive. Um, so it'll be interesting to see as well if JBS is able to access any of these funds since it's a Brazilian-owned multinational company. They slaughter 13 million animals daily. And similar to Cargill, their annual revenues are approximately $50 billion. So, you know, I think... I think we can all agree, and I hope we all agree, that workers in these facilities have a right to safe working conditions, to protective equipment, and to conditions that allow them to socially distance. But multi-billion dollar companies like JBS and Cargill are certainly not in need of a public bailout to protect their workers. They can and should have been doing that all along. Like, I can't even imagine a less deserving industry, first of all, but like set of corporations to get this money. Like... Yeah, okay, you want to help out small producers? I sort of appreciate that. Um, so many people are suffering right now. I mean, just like it breaks my heart to think of all the restaurants that are permanently closing. Every time I open up social media, I hear about a new one. Um, sadly, that's going to be probably a lot of vegan restaurants too. And everyone's suffering right now. Um, but some of the least deserving players in this situation are these multinationals. Oh, and the other thing that was so interesting is um, a website whose name I'm forgetting right now, but we can link to it in the show notes, um, took a closer look at Cargill's uh, financial uh, registration. And it, it seems like they are registered uh, in Luxembourg and may send profits over in that direction. Um, all this international finance stuff, Caitlin, above my pay grade. <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, yeah, but, it's way over my head. But interesting to note is that the government has said it's not going to be funding corporations who rely on tax havens, which Luxembourg is known as a tax haven. So, you know, I think if they do give any of this cash to Cargill, there's going to be uh, a lot of upset people. Yeah, I agree. I mean, and part of the point, you know, in our letter was that when you when you look at who's actually suffering the adverse economic consequences of this pandemic in the agricultural sector, it's disproportionately animals workers and small and mid-sized farmers and independent farmers. So I think, you know, if we're going to be bailing out the industry and, and giving our public funds, then those are the groups that really need our support more than huge companies like Cargill or JBS. Yeah. And I think what sometimes gets missed in, the, in all this discussion of the economy and how to keep it going is like, who does the economy serve? Is it just this abstract concept that is good for businesses, these multinationals? No, that's not really why we have an economy. We have an economy because it helps individuals. Um, it's about individual people, humans, workers who are just trying to make a living and scrape by. So, you know, I think, and this is like a broader complaint about economic policy, which I won't get into too much here, but I think when you start acting as if the economy is like a beast into in itself and forget about the individuals who we really care about, that's, that's why we have these structures is so individuals can benefit then uh, you're losing picture, you're losing sight of the bigger picture. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one other really interesting thing, you mentioned the finance committee or the agriculture committee, and I was watching some of those proceedings too and reading the transcript the other week. And it sounds like at least one member of parliament, a conservative, was asking whether some of that $77 million that's designed to help companies be more protective uh, 
could make its way to the Riding Regency Slaughterhouse in Toronto. Now, this is a notorious slaughterhouse. It was actually shut down in December due to E. coli. Uh, I'm sure you recall that story, Caitlin, because it was a big one at the time. Yeah, and not only was it linked to potentially coli contamination, but they were found to have been providing false or misleading information about the risks of E. coli contamination. So, uh, yeah, it's pretty shocking to see any discussion about federal bailout funding going to that facility. It was seriously egregious. And then to compound that, a couple, um, not a couple years, but like around a year prior to that, some people had actually managed to get a little bit of footage from what was happening inside the slaughterhouse uh, from a window, I think, and it was horrible. I watched that footage. There were cows that appeared to be skinned alive. And I don't believe anyone, any regulator ever took action against the slaughterhouse for that, but it was good to see that at least they got shut down for something. But apparently, according to the committee testimony, uh, Riding Regency is now under new ownership and it um, might be able to benefit from some of that money. And at least one MP was saying, yeah, that's awesome because farmers in her riding were experiencing um, negative effects from not being able to send cows there to be killed. So also super disturbing. Yeah, I mean, and in a lot of the reporting that I've been seeing on how the closure of slaughterhouses has impacted supply chains, a lot of it is mentioning riding regency as well and just saying that that closure in December is compounding things. Um, and it's it's interesting to the tone because in a lot of the reporting, it's kind of framed as this negative thing that the CFIA did, you know, that's having this terrible impact on producers. But I just really think that it's important to keep in mind that there was very good reason to close that facility and that doesn't always come through um, when it comes to reporting or when it comes to individuals testifying before the committee. So um, that's just such an important piece of the story that I, I really hope that the federal government keeps in mind when they're deciding how best to spend our public tax dollars. Yeah, you're right. It all becomes about dollars and cents and who's making money and who's not. And that's that that's missing some of the most important parts of the story. So, yeah, I know. I hope riding Regency um I don't know if it's if it's actually opened again. I don't think it is. I think that they said it was under new management and it would reopen, and I hope it doesn't. Yeah. Hi, this is Marianne Sullivan. I'm the host of the Animal Law Podcast, where I interview lawyers, mostly but not always from the United States, who are using the law to change the world for animals. From wild animals to companion animals to the billions of brutally treated farmed animals, my guests are in this to find ways to remake the law to recognize that animals matter. The Animal Law Podcast is produced by media not-for-profit Our Hen House, and I guess I will mention I'm also the co-host of the Our Hen House Podcast. I hope you tune in wherever you listen to podcasts. On to our favorite segment. Caitlin, you know what this is. Heroes and Zeros. Heroes and Zeros. Yeah, and there's a lot of contenders this week. Oh, as always. I mean, there's usually more Zeros than Heroes. It's always pretty easy to find a Zero. (laughs) There are a lot of Zeros this week. Yeah, a lot, (laughs) a lot. But we did manage to find a Zero that I think is especially deserving of being called out. Uh, It's actually not even in Canada. But it's, well, who is it exactly? The state of Minnesota? Farmers? I don't know. 
There's a story out of Minnesota that's talking about, again, supply chain disruptions and animals not being able to be slaughtered for profit. Apparently what they're doing in Minnesota, Caitlin, is they're killing over 3,000 day uh, pigs at, per day on farms. And guess what they're doing with their bodies? I've, I've seen the reports. Um, yeah, it's hard to believe that that's actually reality and not fiction. Yeah, they're putting their bodies through a wood chipper to quote unquote help them compost. They're literally wood chipping the bodies of these sentient beings who've been killed for convenience and sending little pieces of their bodies out into the environment to rot. Um, there's something just so visceral about that. Like, I know that the wood chipping aspect doesn't cause any additional suffering to the pigs, but. Just the idea that this is what we've come to, that we live in this system where animals can be killed just for the sake of convenience and then destroyed in this way, it just makes me so sick to my stomach. Yeah, I mean, it really just drives home the point that they're seen as commodities and not as sentient beings worthy of dignity or respect. They were all grown and bred into existence, grown to be slaughtered. They couldn't be slaughtered, so they're killed off in some other way, and no one has any iota of respect for... You know them as individuals. It's just heartbreaking. Ugh. Anyway, I shared that that story on Facebook, and it seems like it really hit a nerve because it got like 600 additional shares or something. So, you know, I, I do hope that at least stories like that are filtering into the mainstream, and people who have never thought before about these issues are starting to say, "Really, this is what the industry does," and question whether they want to participate in it. Yeah, and it's just such a terrible mental image. I feel like that that's part of the reason that it hits home for so many people. I mean, when I've discussed that story with people, people's immediate reaction is to mention the movie Fargo, which obviously is quite different because that was an entertaining movie, whereas this is just actually a gruesome reality. But um, but it's a pretty awful image to consider. That's exactly what I thought of, too. Was Fargo set in Minnesota? I think so. Wow. Or oh, was it Minnesota or... North Dakota. Yeah, one of those northern states. Oh, wait. Yeah. That is embarrassing because it's called Fargo, so I should actually just know what state that's from. (laughs) (laughs) It's in Minnesota, Fargo, North Dakota. Oh, North Dakota. Okay. Especially as a Winnipegger. That's embarrassing. Yeah, you should know this. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't been. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't think any of us are going to the States anytime soon. As long as the border remains closed. All right. Well, we have a slightly more uplifting hero, or should I say heroes. We wanted to thank everyone who participated the other week in our Giving Tuesday Now live stream, and especially those people who were able to make a donation. We really, really appreciated it. Uh, We raised over $15,000 for animal justice, which is just incredible. Um, nonprofits, charities, this sector has been hit hard by the pandemic. Um, a lot of us have had to cancel fundraising events. And of course, we rely on support from people like you to do the work for animals. So the fact that so many of you were able to uh, help out in that way is amazing. And if you couldn't due to circumstances, obviously, don't worry about it. Um, but I know a lot of you also tuned in now to our live stream, which was super fun, huh, Caitlin? Yeah, I was. Uh, I had a great time on that. And actually, I really enjoyed listening to the first two guests as well. Yeah, it's it's still up actually. You can uh, you can find it on where is it? I guess it's on our website and I think on our YouTube channel too. Uh, but we had on Dr. Aisha Akhtar, who is a public health specialist. She's a physician who just left employment with the U.S. military, and she's actually just started a new organization called the Center for Contemporary Sciences. 
And um, their goal is to replace the use of animals in science uh, within the next couple of decades, which is amazing because that's long overdue. Yeah. Um, but she's also an expert in um, public health and infectious diseases and knows a, quite a lot more than we do about pandemics and their animal-based origins. So she spoke about that. Then we had Jeff Regeer on, who's a former undercover investigator, and he talked about what he saw on Canadian farms, which was heartbreaking. And then, uh, Caitlin, you and I did a really fun session on how to get politically active. Yeah, it was a great time. It wasn't as entertaining as getting to watch uh, Penny the chicken uh, that <laughs> that Jeff gets to live with, but but it was it was really it was fun. So I'm hoping that people took something from that and that we'll be able to use that um, once governments start opening up again and, and getting down to business. Absolutely, because the the solution to all these problems that we're talking about is political power. Um, as a movement, we need to seize political power. We need to be in a position where we're influential enough to lawmakers that they have to listen to what's best for animals and not just what's best for the industries that exploit and kill them. So any step that any of you make towards that goal is hugely appreciated. And that's why you this week are our heroes. Thank you. All right. Well, that wraps up our episode 55. Uh, Peter is going to be back with us next time. So I look forward to catching up with him and hearing about all of his many projects. But Caitlin, it was great to have you on. Thank you so much for co-hosting. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was lots of fun. All right. Signing off for now, everyone. We'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in today. We'd love to ask you to subscribe to the Pod and Order podcast using Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or your other favorite podcatcher. Also, please leave a rating because it helps more people find the show. And if you can, please tell other listeners to share the podcast so more people can hear us. You can also consider supporting us on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash order if you like what you hear. You can find me on Twitter at, at Peter Sankoff or at my website, petersankoff.com. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Camille Labchuk, that's L-A-B-C-H-U-K. And we always enjoy Twitter conversations about the show or any other animal law or political topics. And finally, we'd like to thank our producer, Shannon Milling. See you next time on Paw and Order. For more great iRaw podcasts, visit iRawPod.com. That's I-R-O-A-R-P-O-D.com. Ah!